I can't go home and face your mom without the money for that amulet. In here. Do you have your lucky lead nugget? Always. A lead lick a day keeps the doctor a blood. Sweet, sweet gold! Why didn't you ever tell us you could do magic? Because if the king finds out, he'll take me away and force me to be one of his evil wizards! You necromancing nitwits! I wanted an all-seeing eye, not this! You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. Welcome back, everybody, for episode 299, one episode away from the big 300, which I went back and re-listened to the Stan episode. I I don't think anything we're going to be able to do is really going to top that just because of nature of how everything happened and how it went down. And he was such a huge guest and plus with his passing. So we'll try to do a good, funny 300 episode. You know, we still need more voice calls. We still need more voicemails. We've got some, but nowhere near as many as we had for episode 200. That's for sure. So call in people. (laughs) Yeah, do that. So we have this week, Daniel Harms returning with his new book. He's actually got two. One of them. I don't know if we're going to cover because we haven't done the interview yet. One of them is the tale of George and Margaret Graham, balloonist, alchemist, and astrologers of the 19th century. But it's a really small book. And I don't know if I want to cover it with him because I don't want to give the book away. The other Mm. book, which is badass, is of Angels, Demons, and Spirits, a source book of British magic. This is the follow-up to the Book of Oberon, which we had him on here for before about. And Mm -hmm. this book is freaking amazing. Um, You have not read this or seen this yet. Um, this is one of those shows where Lobo is coming in this completely dry, but I have full faith that because Lobo is very knowledgeable about these subjects that he'll be fine with it. But the Book of Oberon, which I'm sure we're going to bring up, was more or less a copy of all of these manuscripts so you could flip through and you'd see actual copies of them. This book, um, he actually went in and they totally deciphered a manuscript, translated it from Latin into English, and then it's got all of the spells in it, all of the magic circles. It's a beautiful book, and I think I paid... for it and it was worth every freaking dime um and I think my wife believes that I'm turning into a witch, but we'll get into that into the oh, in the post brother. show. <laughs> we'll get into that post show. It's kind of uh, it's rather humorous actually. So uh, I guess we'll just talk about the rest of the stuff in the uh, post show. And do uh, you got anything you want to say before we jump into this or anything like that? Or you just want to cover everything in post or at, no, I'm yeah, good. All right. I guess uh, as always, we'll see everybody at the other side. We we all right. Here we go. This week we have returning to the show Daniel Harms, which has pretty much become our, I want to say, go-to guy when it comes to anything of historical magic and importance. Your new book is out of Angels, Demons, and Spirits, a source book of British magic, translated and annotated from Bodleian's Library. Did I say that? Wait! I can read it. I can read it. Bodleian? Bodleian? Uh, oh, gosh. Now I'm on the, I'm on the spot on this one, aren't I? 
Bodleian. Bodleian Libraries and 17th Century Manuscript. This book is the follow-up to your book, The Book of Oberon, uh, which, full disclosure, I did not manage to buy that book. I was able to check it out from a library and go through it. This one, I actually pulled money out of my pocket, dug deep, and purchased this one. This book is freaking amazing. It's, uh, as always, you manage to go out and find this really off-the-wall historical magic stuff that's very much unlike everything that's out there. Like, most of the stuff that's out there, we were talking off the, out the air, it's your typical witchcraft books. It's kind of rehashing of everything, whereas you actually go out and you do, like, really thick, heavy research. And I get this vision of you going into, like, like ancient libraries and, and, and digging through stuff, you know? <laughs> so... um <clears throat> This book was based off of an actual manuscript, no? Yes, it was, yes. This is um, Bodleian E. Museo 173, I think is the, the – that's the technical shelf term. So it, they don't they don't give a – this thing doesn't have an actual uh, title to it that's – as a lot of these miscellaneous do. You, they, they don't slap a title on there, so I can't really – uh, tell you what it's what's called in the original manuscripts. So we just have to go with the shelf mark. How do you find out about these manuscripts? Like, do you just know people and somebody says, hey, we've got this old manuscript laying in a library. It's covered in dust or whatever. And then you somehow, somehow through a Jedi mind trick managed to get permission to go in and research this stuff? Or how do you go about finding this? Okay, so let's let's get into that process. So let's see, how would I, how would we start with that? Well, the first thing I do is I read whole lot of material that's out there. Uh, most of the material I cover is not something I've discovered myself necessarily. This is material that we've got some great people out there who, who over the years have written a lot of different uh, articles and books that have touched on the topic of uh, magic in 16th and 17th century uh, Britain for, you know, and just, just kind of sometimes they just refer obliquely to something. Or they say, okay, well, this this is also this right here is a book of magic, and maybe here are a couple of illustrative passages. And what I do is I say, okay, I've got this one seems interesting, and it's kind of hard to tell because you're talking about you know a manuscript that may be the seventy pages, a hundred pages, you know, two hundred pages, and maybe people are just quoting a few little bits of it here and there, and, and you say, okay, well, I've got to go over there and uh, probably see what's in there. Now I've got actually. Just to be clear, there's two different ways to go about this. One of which is to bribe the Pope. Right? Well, <laughs> not, not so much that. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's to actually see if you can get a reproduction of these manuscripts. And I will tell you right now, that's actually pretty cheap and pretty easy at this point for the most part. Because uh, for the most part, these are manuscripts that people have already they've already looked at. And there's already been some interest because there's always been some, you know, us weird people who are interested in magic. And uh, so they they microfilm these, and then now they just shoot the PDF off the microfilm, and then you can just send them, you know, $20, sometimes it's $50. It can be more, uh, depending on what kind of quality you want out of it. But uh, once you once they get the money, they can just ship it, you know, they – you just well not they don't even ship anything physically anymore. I used to get CDs, but now that you just download it from their website and you say, okay, well I've got all the images and you just you know you you know combine them into a PDF and then you've got it. Uh, but that's usually only when you're pretty sure about what you want. What I've been doing more and more is doing the other side of it, which is going to the archive and uh, just looking at manuscripts as I go and just to see what's in them and saying, okay, well I. I 
heard something about this manuscript here. I, at this point, um, for example, I generally set aside anything that's like an Ars Notoria or a Key of Solomon. Not that uh, you and I want to be careful about that, but because you know sometimes something's labeled as a Key of Solomon, which is actually not what we think of as a Key of Solomon. It could be uh, miscellaneous. I think the second part of the Book of Oberon is actually labeled as a Key of Solomon. Mm-hmm. But uh, so. But at this point, people have pretty much covered the Key of Solomon genre pretty thoroughly. So if I want to figure out what's what's in a given manuscript, that's uh, I will go check uh, something by Stephen Skinner or David Rankin or something along those lines. And, you know, I don't need to go check those out. But once I've realized that I've got something that's a little bit unusual, uh, I can make some arrangements. And usually I want to make sure it's, everything's up front. Um, I'm going to some different archives this time because I'm going to Italy – I'm not going to Rome, so uh, there's no bribing the Pope involved. Uh, I'm going to go to Florence. I'm going to see what they've got. Uh, but uh, so you want to make sure you're doing all the groundwork, and I've pretty much got my method down at this point, and that is uh, you know, checking into everything beforehand. Know exactly what you're going to go there to see. Uh, check on whether you can take photographs. Check on the hours of the archive. Check to see if it's, you know, maybe closed on a Monday or open on a Saturday. Uh, make sure you've got the credentials that you need because sometimes there are little quirks to it. I was just speaking uh, in an email exchange with an archive which said, okay, well, you can get a letter, but we don't want a letter from a co- your college. We want a letter from, the, uh, from a professor at your college. So that's a little bit unusual. I'm like, okay, so I'm technically my college, but I'm a librarian, so that's, that they're not used to that. And so you, you just have to kind of make sure you've got all that in hand. So because the idea is that when you show up, you have everything you need to get in. Um, you're there at the right time. You're there at the right place. They know you're coming. They know what you're going to ask for, so they can set it aside beforehand. And then you can, just, you can go in and you can get things done with a minimum of fuss. So that's... That's the method at this point that I, I, I put together for these sort of trips. So, I mean, is there somebody like standing over your shoulder with a white glove and you're not allowed to touch these pages in some situations? Or do you have to go through a, a like a three-hour interview so they make sure that you're not some quack or something like that? And you know, how difficult is this process sometimes? Usually it's uh, taking care of the credentials phase to figure out if I'm a quack, but um – of course, I'm interested in magic, so I don't know if I really passed that particular test. But <laughs> um, there is only one – I can think of one case where I could not actually touch the manuscript, and that was actually um, – we are going to touch on this a little bit later which, with regard to the uh, my new book about George and Margaret Graham. Mm-hmm. That was the one case because there's an alchemical manuscript that they put together. That one was in such poor shape that I was actually – not allowed to, you know, take it into my hands. I had to go back into the conservation area at the Welcome Institute and meet up with one of their conservation people who was able to turn the pages for me and would, you know, if I said, okay, well, I want to really, you know, zoom in on this, they would do that. And I couldn't even take photos of that. I had to um, take uh, take some notes on my computer. Wow. But, uh, yeah. That's awesome. But it's 
It is awesome and also incredibly frustrating. At I the could same imagine time. it would be frustrating. What you, want to, what you really want to do is you want to be able to, you know, go in and say, okay, well, I, I'm really interested in this page. Spend some time on it. Take a picture. Um, because so much of this can actually, what I'm doing can actually be done once you get back. Because sometimes you look at something and you're not quite sure what it is. And sometimes it's easier just to take a picture of it and say, okay, well, I'm going to go home and, you know, would I have unlimited amounts of time and I'm not going to be, you know, constrained by, uh, you know, the reading room schedule or, you know, the fact that I have to catch a plane or something like that. That's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but for the most part, you're in a room that's um, large and open and you've got the manuscript on a sort of stand in front of you. Usually it's like a foam stand and there's little, um, lead weighted strings that you can put over put over the book to kind of keep it in place and then uh that's how you look at it they will you know if they see something that is that they think is unusual if the curators see that they will come over and they'll have a talk with you so um you want to make sure that you know you're behaving appropriately you're not wearing headphones because i, I got in trouble for that once really uh, yeah, it's, it was just like it's, it's, sometimes it's very long days, and you're just like maybe I could have some music. But in this particular case, that was not okay. But uh, for the most part, they just they just leave you alone, and uh, they just trust that you're going to you know take good care of the manuscripts. Usually, it's also you're you're, you're you are touching them with your hands because uh, the gloves lack the proper sensitivity in most cases. So it's it's a sort of trade off between having the oils in your fingers on the page versus the fact that the gloves are lack that sensitivity that keeps you from being able to tear the page sometimes. So there's, so, there's sort of a trade off there. Do you, uh, you, I have to ask this because, uh, it's going through my mind. So while you were there, whenever you're doing this, do you feel like, uh, Wilbur Waitley, while he's talking to, uh, professor Armitage, <laughs> He's sitting well, there with him, breathing over his neck as he's reading that copy of the D manuscript. Uh, I don't think usually they're that attentive. They have other <laughs> things to do. There are, you know, there are many people in the reading rooms. You know, it's, they're not usually full. Well, it depends on the reading room, but there's not usually. They've got other things to do. I mean, they they have they've got regular jobs. They're not just going to be sitting over you and you know just just to watch you uh, <laughs> page through a manuscript because you know, you know they if there's a problem they know where to find you because by the time you get that far they, they know you know where you live they know what your temporary address is uh, you know they've got all this contact information from you you've got your institution or a colleague who's put themselves on the line for you basically oh by mm-hmm. saying that you're not gonna you're not gonna mess anything up so uh and if you're at Oxford, you've taken the lengthy oath about not, you know, damaging books or setting fires in the building. And wait, 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 wait. wait. Yes. What? You have to take an oath that states you're not going to set fire in the building. Hold on, I've got it on a bag. Actually, <laughs> I purchased Are this. From wow. Shop. Okay. I've got it sitting right here. I hereby undertake not to remove from the library or to mark, deface, or injure in any way any volume, document, or other object belonging to it or in its custody, not to bring into the library or kindle therein any fire or flame, and not to smoke in the library, and I promise to obey all rules of the library. Wow. I don't think that's too far-fetched, man. 
Because these are that somebody did at some point for that to be there. Well, people are stupid. Yes. So you know, because these (laughs) these, well these things are sacred. You know, like oh my god, like to to look at these documents because they're you know how old they are. They're one of a kind. They're they're sacred. You know, like to me, libraries are sacred places. You know, they're they're houses of knowledge and things like that. So you don't want to go in and do stupid shit like this. But it's sad that they have to put that out there so people don't go and do stuff like this. You know? I think at this point, for the people who are viewing these particular collections, it's more of a tradition. Because other libraries don't have this. I think that they're just particularly proud of, of having that particular oath that people have to say before they can get an entrance. I respect that, though. I think that's cool. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know, especially with oh, yeah. what you're looking yeah. at, you know. Because I have to ask you, like, when you're looking at these manuscripts and these old documents, and especially the, the kind of things that you cover, I mean, there has to be a sense of pride and respect in you knowing what you're looking at and what you're going over, you know? Yes. So I, I could absolutely respect that. I think that's actually pretty cool, you know, because I, I wouldn't want to be I, – I, I don't want to see some guy coming in and getting, like, grease stains or something from, from a burger or something on this stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we have had people who have um... – who have treated the manuscripts somewhat cavalierly. I think there was a particular 19th century example. There was a guy who is, what was his name? It's like James Hallowell Orchard Phillips or something like that. I probably got that wrong. Well, at that time he was James Hallowell because later he married into money. Uh, but he basically went to the Trinity College Lund, uh, Library in Cambridge, I believe it was. This is off the top of my head. And uh, so I may be getting some details wrong, but he went to Trinity College Library um, apparently walked off with some John D manuscripts, oh John, manuscripts from John D's library. This is in the <laughs> early 19th century, and they were not organized enough to really know what exactly they had. So what happened was he he did this supposedly. He then went to a bookseller later and said, "You know, I need to get some money. I'm going to sell these." And then they ended up being bought by the British Library, and oh this turned God. into a huge scandal because. Uh, of course, Trinity College wanted their books back, but they couldn't really document the fact that they where you know where these books had come from. Um, and uh, James Hallow was telling everybody else, uh, you know, he's sending letters to the Times saying, "Well, you know, this, I, I probably bought these from John Denley, you know, the bookseller." If, if those of you who are familiar with the early 19th century cult bookseller John Denley, yeah, this is probably this item from his catalog and this item from this catalog, oh my and God. it was. It was interesting because I don't know. Do you guys remember who Frederick Cockley was? I do not know. Yes. Okay. So we have one person who knows who Frederick Cockley is. That's fine. Frederick Cockley <laughs> was a major influential sort of magician and uh, who worked with a lot of uh, crystal gazing and worked with the seer and, and, and performed that sort of writing. He was also into a figure in uh, early spiritualism. So he was mid-19th century but he actually wrote the Times back. Unfortunately, they did not publish his letter, but I actually published it um, in an online uh, journal of several years ago. Where he just How goes and he says, "Oh, it's at the Trinity College Library because they had a whole oh, file sucks. on this stuff. That that was fun." But um, how do so you find just, this stuff? How do you know it's there? Like you just dig well, that mercilessly, or, or okay? What I what I found out was that there was actually there was an article written about this whole um uh, this whole affair. And 
it got it started to talk about Frederick Cockley, and I you know I think I found it when I was trying to do an online search on Frederick Cockley because at this point there's a lot of 19th century stuff that's been digitized, right? So I find these mentions of Frederick Cockley in this scholarly article from way back when, and I say, wait a minute. I don't think I've ever heard about this in any work on Frederick Hockley. So I start reading it, and then I said, "Wait a minute! There's actually a reference number down below. I can go to I can go to Trinity College, and you know, I can read this." And I did, and it was really neat because we're not really we weren't really sure how um, we knew that John Denley and Frederick Hockley knew each other. That's that's you know that's one level of sort of interaction we know they had. But what that letter revealed is Hockley could look at the catalog and he could say, "Okay, yeah, number three. That is not what he's talking about. That's some other item. I can tell you exactly what that was. Yeah, number 17, I know what that was as well. It, he was able – he just knew the stock, like, by memory That's of this crazy. bookseller. That's so, um, crazy. That, so that indicates, you know, that the, he was really – he and John Denley must have had a really, you know, excellent relationship. And they both – you know, he was that familiar with the stock that even some, from some bra- – some, I'm sorry, vague man- – mentioned in a catalog uh he was able to pull out exactly what it was and know if somebody described it in some other way that that wasn't the case unfortunately the times published this because i and it kind of because it weighs really poorly against uh hallowell's uh claims and he he was kicked out of the british library for or the british museum at the time sorry i should not be calling it uh the British Library, because that's the modern name, it split off from the British Museum. But it was the British Museum at the time. He was he had, he had to get a ticket for the reading room, and that was, you know, that's where all the you know, if you were an educated person, that's where you would go to, you know, if you want to access the collection. And he got he was kicked out for a while, and then they had to let him back in because everybody was mad because they felt he was being unjustly accused. But wow, so much drama. Clear, <laughs> clear afterward that he was just. He seems to have been inventing some details, and uh, I could figure that up, but he didn't. We are way far afield, aren't we? That's fine. No, it's, it's, no this is fine. fine. We don't. Yeah, that's great. Well, we, you, you, this is what you do, though. You go out and you find this stuff, and you you research all this. So, what's the oldest document you've ever been able to look at and to dig through? Oh gosh, um, I think. Ooh, something I've actually physically been in contact with I'm going to say 15th century wow I, I don't really get too much into the medieval works because most of the material I'm interested in has doesn't go back that far um, I think that people a lot of that stuff I think just didn't survive hmm. but um, yeah so Every so often, I have I have seen something older, but usually I'm working with something from the 16th century or 17th century. Um, and I also have I also dip into the later material as it you know as it comes up, and I want and I want to take a closer look at some of that. So let's circle back around to this book of Angels, Demons, and Spirits. This is based off of a manuscript. So tell us about the manuscript that it is based off of. Okay. Emuzio one seven three. Uh, we has as is the case with many of these manuscripts. It has sort of an incomplete history in some respects. Um, one of the past librarians at the Bodleian, 
uh, said it came from the library of a gentleman named Thomas Allen. And Thomas Allen's kind of an interesting guy. Um, Allen uh, was a faculty member at Oxford back in uh, the see, late 16th century, I want to say. I'd have to pull up the dates in front of me. But uh, he ran into the whole problem where in which Protestantism was starting to really sort of creep into everyday life. And so it, at first people realized that it was not a good idea to just insist that everybody in the colleges convert. Because remember at this point, college was really for training ministers uh, and you know, making sure that people you know, are were ready for the priesthood. So if you just have everybody there convert at once, go in and say, everybody's going to become a Protestant, you may lose most of your faculty, at which point you don't have anyone to train <laughs> the, the ministers that you actually need. So, But as time went on, uh, it became more and more apparent that it was not all right to be a Catholic you know, at Oxford or Cambridge. And so Thomas Allen at some point just seems to have said, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into the priesthood. I'm not going to become a faculty member. I'm just going to become a tutor. I'm going to help people out, you know, with, um, mainly with mathematics. And mathematics at that point was sort of this, um, sorcery. It was, it was often considered to be sorcery, in fact, because people had a hard time distinguishing between, uh, you know, what was, uh, you know, you, you see people looking at strange books with diagrams and and characters that you don't quite understand. Mm-hmm. What does that person really up to? Um, magic. So, yeah. So he was <laughs> he was a he was an astrologer and he was into a mathematician. And so he just decided I'm just going to tutor people in that. And it's so you would think that based on that, since he's not a member of the faculty, he'd be kind of off on the side of everything. But somehow he was in the middle of. Oxford life. He, he was a great wit. People would invite him to parties. Uh, he knew the rules of the college better than most people did. And, um, and the Earl of Leicester, who was Queen Elizabeth's favorite, came to the college. It kind of took over the colleges. He, he really wanted to come down on, you know, Catholicism, make sure that, you know, that the colleges had purity of doctrine. And so you'd think that he would not get along well with Thomas Allen, but they got along great. And uh, so basically Thomas Allen was one of the main people running the college. He actually was one of the main people who solicited money and books for the Bodleian Library when they were starting to form it up again. They, they had had an older library, but uh, it had gone in, into disrepair, and I think it had been shut down by the crown, and now they needed a new one. So he, he helped them with that. Uh, and he was also known in particular for – his connections with John D. I think John D. actually left him a piece of laboratory equipment, um, a lens of some sort. I don't think it was one of his scrying glasses. But, you know, they, they knew each other. They were conversant with each other's work. They seemed to have been friends. Uh, there was a point where um, Albert Lasky, the Polish nobleman, uh, was, in the, was in England. He was recruiting people. And to see if they wanted to go to back to Europe with him, um, which was not something that I think really, in terms of working for Lasky, did not turn out really well for D. But one of the people he asked was D, and one, another of the people he asked was uh, Thomas Allen. But Thomas Allen was just like, no, I, I don't want to be doing this. I'm happy with where I am. And uh, but that shows kind of shows you 
what regard people had for Thomas Allen at the time. So he did collect um, some magical manuscripts. It wasn't the bulk of his collection by any means, but he did collect some, and we believe that this was one of them. It's by the account of one of the uh, Bodleian librarians later on who wrote in the, I guess, in the Marge of the Catalog. Yeah, this comes from Thomas Allen's library ultimately. So that's what we know about it, and I think it's been – so it's been in the collection of the Bodleian for quite some time, since the 17th century. Uh, so unlike the book of Oberon, which has this huge, uh, I think maybe a few hundred year gap in, in between, uh, I think with, we know that Raphael, George Graham got a hold of it. So we're circling back to George Graham, the balloonist again, and Raphael had it, but we, so we don't know where it was between say the 17th, 18th centuries are kind of a blank slate on that particular one, but that's, that's a how it's a long goes. span of time. You know, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not like people were going to go out and say, "Oh, yeah, I've got this wonderful, you know, magical manuscript. Everybody should look at it." I mean, they 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 were circulated. I don't think that they were necessarily a secret among you know the scholarly communities or whatever you know the the communities that would copy these manuscripts and 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 transmit them back and forth, but people didn't. We're not big on putting their names on them necessarily. Well, that it could does be happen. bad for you because you, you don't necessarily – in that time period, magic was you – know, it was – well, and, well, then again, the magic in this book is very Christian-oriented for the most part, um, which – you know, I, I have a question on here. You know, was this pre-Enochian or was this Enochian magic or – because it's along those lines in many ways. Um but I think it's kind of like, well, this is Christian-oriented magic, so it's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, but that's not always the case either. Nonetheless, I don't think you want to have your name on this stuff. You don't want to have something back to where it can be tracked back to you for obvious reasons. Or am I wrong? Uh, you probably wouldn't want to have your name on it. It wasn't as if you would get in – you wouldn't necessarily Dead. get serious <laughs> problems. No, they, were, they weren't going to kill you, most likely, if they caught you with one of these books. It'd say, hey um, – we're going to take away your books and burn them most likely. And then maybe you have to go into the town center with, you know, uh, sometimes it was with a special, you know, you basically be put on public display. Maybe you'll be wearing a special hat. Maybe you'd be uh, put in the stockade. Do not quote me literally on any of everybody because I don't know exactly. I haven't looked into exactly what would be the particular punishment for that. The punishments are very clear on are the ones for, um, uh, for actually practicing, you know, the summoning of evil spirits or, you know, hunting for treasure with magic and that sort of thing where it's very, very harsh. But then again, those penalties were actually very rarely assessed on people. Mm -hmm. um, so, but there, I think there was a sort of feeling that, yeah, this might not be the sort of thing I want to associate my name with, with or, but besides which, I mean, if it's, Sitting there in your library, if you wrote it and copied it and it's in your library, then you don't need to write down whose book it is because you know it's your book. Mm -hmm. And exactly. I would also – I'd also add one other small detail, which is um, particular for Oberon. It's also possible that there would be information about authorship that was beyond the first pages that – or the last pages of a manuscript, which have sometimes uh, fallen away with time, which is what happened with Oberon. We're, I think we start on page 15 or something like that uh, of the actual mm. manuscript. Uh, we, we don't know what happens to the rest of it. 
So let's talk about the magic that's actually in the manuscript, because this is a fairly thick book. Um, for for a manuscript, like this is like this is book size. I mean, this this is not screwing around. It's a nice thick grip of book here. It's not like a little, like it's not as small as your other book by any means. It's it's a nice size. So, and it's packed full of everything. So let's talk about the magic that's actually in it. Well, what would you like to talk about? Is this pre-Enochian? Is Enochian? <laughs> Where would you like to start with this? What kind of magic it is, is this? Because it's not witchcraft by any means, yeah. but it's very Christian-oriented, yet there are spells in here for summoning demons and stuff like that. I see a lot of uh, angel names in here mentioned. Um, the You have a lot of really cool, nice drawings, uh, very well detailed of magical circles, which blew me away because I'm really into the symbology of magic. I like the way the yeah. stuff looks and stuff. I don't practice any of it, but I do like the look of it. And this book is full of it. You've gone through a lot of really cool art detail in here. Uh, the symbols, everything. But um, what kind of magic would this be considered then? Um, I would say that it's what's, what people have called ritual magic or learned magic. So it's magic that would be practiced by people who could read and write, um, who could to whom the uh, textual tradition was important. It often might be performed by members of a, what they would in the medieval times, or actually it's modern scholars who labeled this, uh, the clerical underground, which is basically you've, uh, the idea is that there have been a large number of people trained at universities to become um, priests, but you know some of them didn't make it through, and some of them may have not had any particular, they may have have a Sinecure or you know a, a job at the end of that process, so they mm-hmm. have to make do, and so they basically use bits of liturgy and um, prayers to and combine them into this uh, form of magic where you use you use these characters and you use these circles to get you know to maybe work for a client or yourself to get some sort of uh, uh, the favor of the rich or to get sex or to make money or do any of these things. And today we call that either, I've seen it called ritual magic, I've also seen it called learned magic, but it's, you know, that that's how this has generally been defined. Mm-hmm. I think I've also heard the term uh, ceremonial magic, which some people might put this under, but I'm starting to really, I'm starting to really feel that that's, tells us, that pushes us more to the 19th century, because that's more of um, a uh, lodge magic at least that's how I would I would define that, which does have some aspects from things like the Key of Solomon and so forth that have been incorporated in. Yeah, but, it's it's you know, kind that's, of that's sprinkled all through here. Like this is this is not a book of if you're getting into magic, I would not say buy this book. It's great. It's it's cool if you're really into the stuff. Like if you're into Enochian magic, sure you could probably bounce into this. But this is very thick, dense stuff. Um, it doesn't. It, it reads kind of like an instruction manual for a radio or something like that, like building like building a Radio Shack radio from scrap, for lack of a better term. Yeah, kind mm-hmm. of what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it screams to me of Enochian for the most part, but it's it's not. It, is it, this is pre-Enochian, correct? Or this is what Enochian was based off of? Ooh, this is uh, – okay. So let me see if I can – I'm going to back up a little bit because I'm not a John D. expert myself, So, but I think I can lead us through this. So John D. took material that was like this. I mean there's a whole corpus of material out here of which this is a sample. So John D. worked from that material, 
um, and then sort of got in touch with the spirits and the spirits talked to him and he talked back to the spirits and the spirits said, well, you know, you should be doing such a, this in a different way. And so he tried that. And then they said, oh yeah, by the way, you should be using these sort of incantations in this angelic language. So you should work on that. And then he, you know, he, he transcribed all this down. So John D kind of just, he starts with this sort of magic and then he just kind of goes off. That's where we get Enochian. Mm-hmm. By by that continued interaction with the spirits and as you know as revealed through his spiritual diaries, so this I would not call Enochian, and in fact Enochian I think is not horribly influential for a while, maybe until the mid seventeenth century, uh, when a guy named Casabon decides that you know what people think that John Dee is you know a really amazing guy, which he was. But Casablanca didn't think so, and he said, "Well, he's one of those what I'm like do names is, that people drop out. They're like Alistair Crowley, John D. You know, he's one of the he's he's like yeah. he's in that little elite crowd. Like if you don't know what you're talking about with magic, you can just toss the names out there, and people will kind of think that you know what you're talking about. Or if people don't know what they're talking about, they'll look at you and go, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about.' But if you know what you know buzzwords to say, that's kind of what it is." But at the same time, uh, there was also John Dee at the time was also known as a mathematician and a navigator, and you know as this you know remarkable scientific thinker as well. And Casabon said, "Well, we're we're going to show people what he was really about. So let's we're going to publish these, uh, you know, in my true and faithful relation. I'm just going to publish you know these spiritual diaries of John Dee, and that's going to prove to everybody that you know what he did was ridiculous, and everybody is going to laugh at him. But what seems to have happened was uh, people bought the book and said, "Hey, your system of magic, I can use this." And so, which is usually what happens every time somebody publishes a work of magic and hoping that people are going to make fun of it. But uh, so, <laughs> the exact opposite I effect. Think that, <laughs> yeah, I think that. I mean, there wasn't for a long time. The manuscripts were lost. I'm sure that a D specialist will probably be able to fill you in a lot more of the details than I'm able to. Uh, and then they went into the collection of people like uh, like the Cotton family, which was very, you know, they didn't just let every, anybody walk in to see these. And uh, so for a while then, it was, I mean, Casabon was what a lot of people had access to um, when, it, when it came to uh, practicing this sort of magic. It wasn't, I think, until about the 19th or maybe early 20s. Well, it was 19th century. This is when Mathers comes along and people start saying, hey, you know what, I think we can probably go through, you know, the, we can start fighting. These are, these manuscripts are all in libraries now. Why don't we go look at the manuscripts and see what we can get out of them? Uh, instead of just taking Casabon's word for everything, which is probably not such a great idea anyway, seeing as he might not have been that careful. And if you are, if this, that is something that is important to you, then, you know, you want to go beyond what he's written. Because I'm looking at page 118 right now, and it's got the sigil of the sun on it. Again, beautiful artwork, beautiful, you know, how everything's transcribed. Even, like, the little symbols that you have uh, in the small paragraphs and everything. I'm blown away by the amount of detail that you've put into this. But as you look at the sigil of the sun, no, I'm not just relentlessly kissing your ass, by the way. But (laughs) um, you look at the sigil of the sun, and you've got Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, Uriel. You've got all of the angels around the outside. Oh, you're talking about the circle of the earth right down below it. It's hard to tell sometimes. Correct, yeah, the circle of the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, but this stuff, it, it all just, it all reeks of the same flavor if you're looking at it from the outside looking in. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, 
the only way you could practice this kind of the only way you could practice magic back then and not get burned at the stake is if you had this stuff littered throughout it to people. So people at the time would go, "No, he's not doing the work of the devil. There's obviously angels and stuff in there. He's just invoking angels and things like that along those lines." Um, well, I would say sometimes. Okay, first of all, you're not getting burned at the stake for practicing it. Uh, well, you could. I think it was more you would be executed. I'm not sure what the mode of execution was, but. Uh, there's also they sometimes go beyond that. I mean, there's there's rituals, for example, in Oberon where they talk about, hey, we're gonna summon Satan. Here's a big picture of Satan. Oh yeah, but uh, Satan's a spirit, so uh, that's not an evil spirit necessarily, right? Oh right, yeah, guys? the devil's in the details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Literally. they do, sometimes they generally, I'd say a lot of it. What your characterization is generally correct that a lot of it is really aimed at angels or. More likely, it's just aimed at spirits because even, you know, getting in touch with angels is a little questionable because you generally assume that angels are off doing something that they're supposed to be doing. And then if you just have them come down and, you know, because you're trying to find treasure or something, that's a little questionable. It's like you're, you're kind of saying that you're, it's sort of like you're overruling God. You can almost, you know, consider that to be the case but if it's just a spirit of some unknown type well then who knows where that spirit comes from could be anywhere <laughs> and uh so that's that's how that's a lot of how they they would set this up in terms of trying to legitimize it so let's go into um we've mentioned the book of oberon several several times now what are the fundamental differences between this book and the book of Oberon? From what I've seen from Oberon, it was more or less, it, it was also a very cool book, but it was more or less just like copies and scans and direct pictures of the manuscript. Whereas in this book, you've gone into a lot of detail to actually transcribe from, I'm assuming Latin, but I'm assuming there's probably other uh, languages involved as well. But what are the fundamental differences between these two books? Well, to, the similarities are they're both examples of magical miscellanies. So it's not a single rite that is basically set up to do all sorts of things like the Key of Solomon. These are This is somebody recording what magical rites come to them and putting them in a book that is of interest to them. Uh, I would say that Oberon, the book of Oberon has a more of a sense of theatricality about it because you've got these pictures of the spirits that they took from other books and they just get somebody just kind of copied those in. It's like, Hey, look at this. This is the spirit. And you sort of wonder, you know, what the reason for that particular, you know, philosophy was. Maybe this was somebody who was actually working for clients. And so they'd open up the book and Hey, look, there's a big picture of, you know, what is actually a wild man from the forests of Germany, but it's actually, it says they're there at Satan. And, oh my gosh. That, that's really impressive. It's, you know, somebody sees it. Whereas this one is more of a, I'd say it's a little bit more miscellaneous. It's more put together by somebody who is interested in taking what they're, what they are particularly interested in, taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and kind of putting together their own system, uh, or their own sort of. I would call well, I don't want to call it a system necessarily, but they they've got they've kind of got this grab bag of stuff, and so they can say well. I like this particular group of spirits or I like this particular magical circle and I'm going to make sure that's in my book. So, you know, maybe I get down the road and I find a ceremony and I want to use a particular magic circle. Maybe I'll just, I'll draw one of these. So it's like a homemade um, family cookbook for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more toward that. Whereas Oberon, uh, I think is, there's a performative quality to it. That's not present in this particular book. Um, 
I'd also say one of the neat things about this particular book is that there are spirit lists that have not, to my knowledge, been published before. I think there was one that turned up in a dissertation, but it's a a similar list turned up in a dissertation. Uh, but um, these are lists that people have will probably not be familiar with. It's we've gotten used to the whole idea of you know a spirit list being like the Goetia, so you've got your seventy two spirits. And then what Oberon did is it kind of gave a different version of the same list, uh, as you'll find the Goetia with um, sort of the with the three main you know three uh, main demons at the very head of it. And what uh, what of angels, demons, and spirits has in it is a different sort of list, which um, do not fit into that model in which um, the spirits are called on to do different things that are in that model, like. Um, bring people fish or bring people clothes or bring people books. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, so that's, that's an interesting twist because we've gotten used to thinking of, you know, that there's one er spirit list out there. I think that's what the impression a lot of people have when it, actually it's a lot of people just these scribes just copying down different spirit lists and kind of customizing them for their own uses. You ever get the feeling like the spirits are kind of like, they're very taxed, you know, and then like here you come along and you release this list of spirits that are relatively unknown and they're like, shit, now we're going to be getting bugged all the time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> don't put, it's like, it's, uh, it's kind of like a phone book. You don't want your number published in, you know? <laughs> well, if that's a problem, I, they haven't told me about it. So I got to ask you this again, since you brought that up every time I talk to you and I, I, I always ask you, and I know where this is going to go, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, go ahead. Are you or are, are you a practitioner of magic, or do you you always come up with some clever way of getting around that? I'm always it's always humorous to hear it. Uh, I do not comment on that publicly. I think that it's uh, I want people to judge the work for what it is, um, because once people know what you know what your particular take is and what your particular spiritual path is, they look at the you know the book and say, oh well, obviously this is you know just this particular. This is how somebody with this particular spiritual perspective would look at this topic, which I think is often misleading, especially when you're – what I'm largely doing is editing these books based on uh, – you know, that were based on a manuscript written hundreds of years ago, So, which makes it a little difficult sometimes for when working with editors. And they say, okay, well, well, what does this mean? I'm like, I don't know. You know, I can, <laughs> I can tell you – I can modernize it. Um, or, you know, if there's a magical word and you don't know quite what it is, uh, yeah, it's not as if you can go back and ask somebody. You can maybe find another manuscript and, you know, use that information to fill in the gaps, but, uh, it's, uh, it, that could be challenging. So I'll take that as a yes, but, um, <laughs> no, um, I'll, I'll, there was, somebody said something that's similar to me, similar like this to me once, but, um, for a person who doesn't cook very much, you sure do write a lot of cookbooks. Um, <laughs> so, well, I would say that the cookbooks themselves are fascinating. One of the things I'm doing right now is I'm actually writing an article about one particular subset of rights, uh, that are based around the figure Azazel. And the, well, the right is, is very simple. And I think a lot of people will be interested in, especially, you know, in sort of the, um, uh, I guess we call it the, the left hand path community. You know, they, these are people who, who have, you know, want to explore these figures. And it's, it's a very simple rite, basically. It's, you know, someone goes to a graveyard and, uh, goes to, goes to a grave and then says, 
calls upon Azazel to release the spirit of the dead to speak to them. And then they carry away some graveyard dirt and sleep with it under their pillow and uh, see if they can have a dream vision from the dead person. And mm-hmm. yeah, so, and well, what this does is it tells you so much about, um, about the culture and meaning and belief and theology that surrounds death at that time. And, or rather it tells you that a lot of how people have framed those debates is, um, is sometimes misleading and doesn't give you the whole, the whole story. So I'm hoping to get that published at some point soon. Uh, but it's, you know, that's the sort of thing you could actually pull out of this because it's, there are, I believe that these works, you know, people, if people want to practice magic on these, these works, they should certainly go ahead and do whatever they, they feel fulfills them. But there's also historical dimension to it, which I also think is important. And especially since so much of what we know about magic is really filtered through a very few texts, which were discovered in the early 20th century for the most part. And that's when we talk about this sort of magic, that's what people read. It's like the Goetia, it's the Kia Solomon, it's Abramelin. You know, it's, what is the other one? It's uh, Arbatel, I believe. So, um, or is it the, it's not Almondel. I, I get these three mixed up, but, uh, so, so, and some of your, sorry, sorry, listeners who are saying they're smacking their heads. Who cares? Don't worry about uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it's just like that very small sort of subset of what is actually out there, what people could have been working with. And, uh, so I think that basically just getting these out there where people can read them and be aware of them and say, Hey, wait, I, this contradicts what's in some of the stuff I've already read uh, is, is valuable. So I got to ask you this book here, you've uh, obviously, I'm assuming that most of this was written in original text in Latin or some other foreign language. Um, correct. Or were they, were they written in English? Most of that book is English. I think okay. maybe it's a quarter of it is in Latin. So, how hard was it to sit down and go through these and translate it from Latin to English and put that in the book? And also somebody, this is something I've always been curious about. Now, both of you are probably going to jump on my case for this, but if somebody wanted to use spells out of this book, since you have them in English and they were to read them in English and do, because there's points in here where you say you'll have a symbol and you'll say this symbol represents that you're supposed to read this part here. And rather than just have that thing repeated over and over again in the spell, you'll say blah, 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 symbol, blah, 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 symbol. So every time you see the symbol, I'm supposed to state this. So if I wanted to cast a spell out of here and I'm an idiot and I can't read Latin or pronounce it wrong and I were to do the spell in English the way we speak it now, would the spell theoretically still work You know, if I believe that the spell would work or, or am I supposed to be a purist and go through and read it in the Latin form? Uh, that I think was – there's – I'm trying to think about what would be – how people from the time would have considered that. I'm not going to say that they would have said – you. There's a varying degrees of accuracy with which the um, various copyists um, approach these things. Some of them are very sort of, you know, they're very meticulous about it. Unfortunately, of Angels, Demons, and Spirits, it's one of those books where people are, are really meticulous. You see, by the way, James Clark was the person who did the work on those magical seals. Mm-hmm. So I just want to give him props. Uh, but the, they're, the ones you see in the book are 
almost as clean as his. Maybe we've cleaned up a couple of abbreviations or something like that, where it's just like, you know, where a modern reader would just look at that and wonder what what exactly is going on here. Uh, but uh, they're pretty much the same. Yeah, that's a problem with the Book of Oberon because you'd see it and you'd be like, "What?" It, you had pictures in the Book of Oberon, but because it was so old and faded, mm-hmm. you'd kind of look at it and be like, what is that word or what is that symbol or what is that? Whereas in here, everything is very crisp, clear, very nice, vivid. Yeah, as you were saying. Go ahead. Would, I'm sorry. I would say that um, it really depended on the person whether they would you know, there's. I mean, if this was all, if it was really important to the people at the time that everything be said in Latin, you wouldn't end up with this. You know, three fourths of this book in English, mm-hmm. or the good number of these other manuscripts of uh, English magic, which are you know largely written in English with some passages in Latin to varying degrees. Um, so that I guess that would be my response, which is that most of them did not. I think see Latin as something was sacrosanct and you couldn't actually translate material into English because otherwise we wouldn't have that. Okay. So, you know, I guess it, the people's mileage will vary and they will do whatever they want to do with the manuscript, no matter what I say about it. Cause I know somebody out there is going to be like, no, no, you, to get these to work, you actually have to say them in the correct language. You have to pronounce them in proper Latin and, and blah, 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 blah. It's Whereas, about intent. What's that? Yeah. Intent. Exactly. It's about intent. So, mm-hmm. If that's the case, then that, you, you could read the English version of the spell, and if you're intense behind it, theoretically, that would power the spell. There would be a number of ways that people will approach it. Yeah, yeah. There would be a number of different ways people could approach this. I would also say that there are some points where the person writing the manuscript might not have been that careful. I like to think that this manuscript was written by somebody who actually, you know, was trying to be careful, and that you know they, they they've got some lovely handwriting in it, and the, this, as I said, the magical circles and seals are very clear and very you know they're very crisp, and it's clear what you know what exactly is going on with them, and so it's not like some others like I will bad mouth welcome manuscript one ten here or you know it's just like well it's a magic circle but we'll make it kind of like an oval yeah that's good enough. <laughs> and maybe the squares aren't quite square. Is just we won't worry about that. Um, so uh, there were different. Even at the time, there were different attitudes for these topics. So let's move on to my favorite part when I interview you. Let's get to the spells themselves. Um, I okay. sent you a message on Facebook saying, "Are there much like the Book of Oberon? Um, are there any spells in here in particular that stick out to you as ones that you found very interesting? The ones me and you both agreed on that that the ones for theft I found very interesting. Here's a book that's, you know, there's a spell in here to make a thief return something that he that he stole from you. There's quite a few ones that are involved theft in here. There's ones on how to find treasure. Mm-hmm. So let's start yeah. with 174 experiments on witchcraft, and then we'll work our way into those." Okay, so um, just to give people some sort of uh, context for this, uh, what's, why I selected these is because it, it emphasizes that when we think about witchcraft, we think about it as the state going after people or the church going after particular people, although it's usually you know the state and the church working in some sort of concerted uh, effort, um, handing off something from one body to another, depending on where it was and when it was and a number of other factors. But what was really happening in a lot of cases was not necessarily that because, you know, those sort of witch hunts would flare up and then go away in various places. But people still believed in witchcraft, even if, you know, there wasn't the state wasn't conducting a witch hunt at that time. So 
what they would do is they would go to local magicians and say, hey, um, I think that there's something um, unusual going on. I think it's witchcraft. Can you look into this for me? And so this, there are various spells that will let people determine if they're bewitched, who the person is who bewitched them, and then give them some sort of remedy to that. And that's what some of the ones we've gotten here. So pick one and go from there, I guess. Okay, I'm going to pick the the first one on the page to spoil a thief or witch or any other enemy. So we're kind of, you wanted to talk about theft. You want to talk about witchcraft. We got it all in, in one. So the interesting thing about this spell is that it's um basically going out and selecting a branch using a particular, you know, saying a few words when you do so. So I gather the bow of this summer's growth, the name of such a one N and in other sources. And this is done before the rising of the sun. And in other sources, it's specified that this should be a hazel wand. And one of the interesting things about this is this is something you also will find in uh, collected in 19th and I think early 20th century German folklore as well. So the same sort of process. So you get the wand and you take a and you take a cloth and you put it over the table, and then you start saying this incantation, and then you start hitting that cloth with the wand. And as you continue to say this incantation, and um, basically what you're doing is you're just beating the crap out of whoever that is. That's you're, the thief or the witch or whoever it is. <laughs> like They're a getting voodoo doll. Around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's the idea behind it. So uh, so basically, it's sort of the idea behind witchcraft in any sort of most societies in which it appears is that there is a magical connection that is formed by, say, whatever curse is put out or, or you know, ill will. And so that can also be followed back to the original source. So what you're doing here is you're taking advantage of this, you know, this connection and just kind of, you know, sending something back to make them stop doing whatever it is they're doing or to make a thief return the, the goods or, you know, do whatever you want to Make sure that whoever is behaving inappropriately starts behaving appropriately. Stop pummeling me. Here's your shit back. Quit casting your spell. <laughs> it's like pushing pins through pictures. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which I think is actually the next one as well. So we've got sort of a um, parchment made out of lambskin that the magician takes and then draws a couple of images on them. And I think it doesn't say it explicitly. I'm just talking off the top of my head of something I've just noticed. It may be that there's a man and a woman on there because they don't know exactly who's doing it. So they want to make sure that they're covering their bases. I think you'll see a lot of this actually thinking back to some of the uh, Mesopotamian material from you know millennia before, that there is often an emphasis in rituals such as the Maklu text on you know saying, well, it's a male witch or a th- female witch. We're not sure which one it is, but we're going to make sure we cover our bases and say it's both. Um, and so you just take a you take a dagger or a nail, and then you just start cricking them while saying this incantation, and you do this two or three times a day until um, that person shows up and actually uh, asks for forgiveness and will and promises to stop doing what they're doing. Um, which, based on anecdotal evidence and whether you want to take this as the efficacy of magic or just, you know, the effects of people in a small town knowing, you know, 
maybe somebody is doing magic or wishes they'd done magic or had a dream in which they were doing something to somebody and then hears that, oh, yeah, they're doing some sort of right, which involves a uh, few houses over, which involves pricking, you know, this image, which is going to hurt the witch. Maybe they just, you know, run over there to, um, you know, to, to just kind of be proactive about that because they're not <laughs> hey, sure we were part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what, whatever it is that that's, you know, it seems to have been something that people found satisfying. It, to, it often would resolve the matter then and there, and then it would never, it wouldn't escalate to the point where you have to get the authorities involved. Because once you get the authorities involved, it can go in all sorts of different directions, and people can say, you know, they can counter sue you for slander, maybe because you said they were a witch, and that's a bad thing, or you might have to pay the court fees, and it, it just gets really complicated. So, so this was sort of going on for centuries in England and across Europe uh, that you had these local practitioners who were doing things like this. You know, just a very sort of simple rite, which was, um, you know, done could be done very easily, and that would take care of people's uh, problems and hopefully resolve some sort of uh, whatever concerns they have about their neighbors or um, deal with some of the local tensions and anxieties. So you also have spells in here. You've got a, quite a few, I believe, for finding treasure or for finding hidden objects or, you know, things that have been buried and so forth. You mm-hmm. know, that was that a common thing? This this all reeks, goes back to like clever men and things like that for the most part. Like you, yeah, yeah, you, cunning you, men, yeah, 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 cunning men. That's it. Like your book, The Long Lost Friend. You can see the birth of all this stuff happening here, where people go and contact these people and say, "Hey, I need this done. Can you do this for me?" You know, yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, when people like frequently go out and hire these people, hey, I need you to find a treasure for me, you know, and if you didn't find the treasure, what would happen? Well, I guess it failed. Um, Got to go. Bye. You know. <laughs> well, actually, it was it's interesting, the treasure hunting aspect of it, because, first of all, you know, in an era before there were reliable banks and things of that sort, it might be possible that someone would indeed hide money and, uh, you know, in their house or in some, some place where they could go back and get it later. And then of course, you know, maybe that person dies and they forget about it. So, you know, maybe every so often somebody finds something. There's also the fact that these have, and you go back of, you know, to these places being inhabited for thousands of years. So you could even get some sort of rich, you know, say Roman cash that's, that, you know, someone finds and, this this was actually reported that people would find these things and or you know a, a burial mound and they would go in and they'd actually find some treasure so that there was sort of a there was a little bit of truth to it but hmm. they would but they could also get around this very easily uh in terms of uh, in terms of the uh when you you approach it with some skepticism which is definitely warranted uh there were a number of ways that people could get around that particular um, question of, oh, yeah, I saw that, thought there was treasure here. Um, I should dig for it. And, 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 well, I didn't find anything. Well, that means that, you know, magic doesn't work. Well, it may be that that particular spell didn't work. It's often that uh, there are sometimes stipulations on treasure hunting, like you have to be quiet the whole time. And so just, you know, thinking of people you know who are, you know, might be the sort who would go out at night into some, you know, forbidden place and dig for treasure, how many of them would be capable of keeping oh, no, quiet no. for hours of digging? Yes. Um, 
Or there was also the belief that the spirits um, kept the treasure. And so what would happen then is uh, maybe the spirits, you, you didn't do the right incantation or you did no incantation, and the spirits could move the treasure around. Or the treasure, sometimes there's even an indication that the treasure moves of its own inclination. Like, yeah, it can come up to the surface, but usually it's just going to go straight down, um, and you're not going to be able to find it. Uh, so... This so there were a lot of reasons why uh, you know people would come back from a treasure hunt empty-handed, but nonetheless would be convinced that there was treasure out in a place and that it could be you know retrieved. I should also add uh, one other aspect of this was that um, there were often ghosts associated with treasures. So you know today when you uh, when we talk about, you know, say this house house is haunted, there's some sort of apparition in it, or we hear weird sounds in it. Our, our tendency is to say, well, um, this has got to be, you know, the uh, this has got to be an unsettled spirit, or maybe it's some sort of psychic energy, and we want to go over there and we want to use, you know, scientific instruments, or we want to use a, a medium or somebody to talk to the spirits. Back in the day, the assumption would have been we hear weird things going on at that house at night. There's spirits active. There must be a treasure there. So we got to go over there and start digging for treasure because, first of all, that's going to be good for us because we're going to make money off of it. But also, it's going to free the spirit from their servitude because obviously the service, the, the spirit oh, is over there okay. because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's either maybe it, it hid the treasure during its life or, and it was unsettled, or in some cases, maybe somebody slew the spirit, slew the person whose spirit then guards the treasure. So, that's a sign that there's a treasure. So, so we're going to go over there and, you know, hey, we're, we're kind of doing our Christian duty by making money off of treasure hunting. If oh, so, you B. are. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So this became a, a major industry for, for quite some time. And you actually, there's a whole book uh, Dillinger wrote on magical treasure hunting in Europe and North America, which really gets into some of these anecdotes of people who don't, really seem to have been successful in most cases in treasure hunting, but we're nonetheless usually very convinced that it was going to, you know, they were going to, they were going to figure it out. It was all going to work out. They were going to find that treasure um, through, through magic and uh, through some, uh, you know, hard work and digging. So usually if you're the one doing the magic, you want to find someone else to do the digging. Uh, in fact, if you start reading about these groups, it starts becoming like a Dungeons and Dragons party. <laughs> because you've got like the you got like the big strong guys who are going to do the digging, and then you've got you've got a magician, and you, or you could have a priest. Maybe kind of a magician and a priest, because as we said, we've seen before, those roles sometimes combine, and uh, maybe you get some shady characters there too. So you got your thieves, and you know it's 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 interesting to see that from from that perspective that this this is something that actually sort of played out in the way that. Um, we in our fantasy role playing campaigns, it often does. <laughs> I can That's now great. that you say it, I can totally see it. So, uh, um, so who's casting magic missiles? <laughs> lightning bolt, <laughs> lightning bolt, death. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and then you've got the big brawly guy, he's like the uh, the fighter or, or the barbarian or what have you. But who's the um, DM, yeah, really, exactly. Who would be? Um, <laughs> 
Let's move on and at least give you a little bit of time on this one. It's a small book, but you've also got a book out called Balloonist Alchemists and Astrologers of the 19th Century, The Tale of George and Margaret Graham. I didn't want to cover too much of this on the show because, it, to be honest with you, I'm I'm used to seeing like big, thick books from you. Every book that I have from you, it's like, wow, there's another one of Daniel's books. I get this one in and it's like, wow, this is... For one of your books, this is kind of tiny, you know. <laughs> so, oh, it is, yes, yeah. yes. So, um, you know, uh, how much do you want to talk about this or what have you? Because I, 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 it's a cool book. I would like to be able to talk about it a little bit, but I don't want to give too much of it away because of what it is. Well, I, I'll just give a brief summary. Um, this is about um, George and Margaret Graham. These were um, major celebrities. They were probably some of the best known magicians of their day. I say that not, you know, in the sense of, you know, magic in terms of ritual magic. Uh, though I'm not quite sure how far Margaret got into it, but they were certainly into astrology and alchemy. Um, and they were very well known, but they weren't known for that necessarily. They were known for, um, ballooning because ballooning had suddenly, uh, become this major out there. The Montgolfier brothers sent up their balloon. They, you know, it became a major area of interest to a lot of people at the time. So you'd have, you know, a big festival and people would send up a, a balloon at that point and the Grams would do this. And it's an interesting book because the Grams were not particularly good at it. So there are a lot of ballooning accidents in this book. <laughs> it's just like, you know, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Balloons smash into buildings, balloons that get, you know, fly out, get blown out to sea and then where the grams have to be rescued. And it's, it's really, there are a couple of fascinating people. And the goal behind this was just to take what I knew about the grams, because really I did not have time to write a, you know, a 300 page book on the grams. I would rather be working on the stuff that I'm working on, like these other two books. But I had put together enough material about them. And I said, okay, well, this is we're, we're kind of at the point where other people will be interested in hearing about them and what they were up to. And so I'm just going to put out a very a tiny book on the Grams uh, so that other people will then have that material available to them, and they will know that the Grams are something more than, uh, you know, what they are in most – uh, occult 19th century occult work which is just kind of like this they're, they're a footnote basically like yeah the Grams are you know, George Graham was around and he was interested in occultism or the ballooning books which just say yep there were the Grams uh, Margaret did the uh, was the first woman I think she was the first woman to fly to a, make a solo flight at night and they crashed into a lot of things damn women drivers so Oh my God! Uh, nope, send not your going hate there. mail. Go in there. Uh, but George was also very bad at this. Okay, just let's just be fair. Um, but uh, just to be able to put this out there so people can, you know, explore this and be aware that these these were figures who were out there who were admirable in some ways and you know sort of also despicable in others. I will share one little story from this just to give you a taste. And it's not a story about magic or alchemy or anything like that. So the first time George Graham goes up in the air, he's flying in a balloon made of cotton or lawn. I think usually lawn is cotton. And usually balloons are made of silk, which is much lighter than cotton. is. So he has some trouble getting this balloon up. And after a while, he just switches off to the 
to the soap balloons. And so he sells off the um, cotton balloon to other people. So they, there's like these little records of people trying to go up in this cotton balloon and failing in the gas company because this is being powered with coal gas at this point. They're just getting mad about the whole thing. They're saying, if we know this is this stupid balloon, we would never would have offered it, you know, <laughs> our services to these people. So eventually it makes its way back to the Grams. And the Grams are sort of in this uh, – I'd say a boom and bust sort of cycle in their lives where sometimes they're very much in debt and, you know, and sometimes they're doing really well and making a good amount of money. So at one point at their, at a particular ebb, uh, the sheriff basically tells one of his agents, okay, like the Grams owe us money. We, we need to get some, something out of this. We're going to send you in to confiscate their balloon. So the guy goes, he gives him the shit one. (laughs) Well, here's what happens. So, yeah, so he shows up at, at the Grams. Margaret, George isn't there, but Margaret is. So Margaret takes him out and gets him drunk and then <laughs> hands him the cotton balloon and the silk one. And so they've got, got this crappy cotton balloon. I don't think they realize it until it's, you know, they're, they're about to go up for auction. They're like, oh, wait, this isn't the right one. But th- at that point, you know, the Grams are sort of a uh, – that that's that works for them at least in the short term. So th- there are some times where they're just kind of you know they're maneuvering themselves around to get themselves around the local authorities or you it know sounds like it'd be a great movie. <laughs> they're leaving town before everybody figures out that they're not actually going to do an ascent. Oh yeah, well we got all your you know your admission money, but we're not we're not going to be able to send up the balloon today. But everyone will get in tomorrow. Pack up the balloon that night, head out of town. Uh, nice. So um yeah so these there's a number of different reasons why I wanted to write this book because they're just they're just fun people to write about and but they're also very much involved in that um, astrological and alchemical and occult scene of the time as well uh, and as I said George Graham was one of the people who owned uh, the book of Oberon for a very short amount of time it seems but uh, he did own it so he was interested in that sort of uh, ritual magic. Hmm. Well, um, again, we'll give your book a shout out of Angels, Demons, and Spirits, which is an excellent book. I cannot say that enough. Even if you have a passing historical interest or if you're just really into like into cool magical artwork, go out and buy it for that book alone. It's a great coffee table book. It looks great in my bookshelf, I'll say that. And then your other one, Balloonist, Alchemist, and Astrologers of the 19th Century, The Tale of George and Margaret Graham, which is a pretty – it is fun. <laughs> it's a fun little read. Yes. It's, it's it's great. Like I, I want to say bathroom reading material. Maybe that sounds derogatory, but it's not meant to be. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not like bathroom. little short. It's like it's like little, basically a lot of little short anecdotes about you know horrible things that happen to people in balloons. So you know, I love it. <laughs> if awesome. that's what you want to read, that's, so that's good. What do you have next in the works, and how soon can we expect something else to come out from you? So I can pester you about coming on here again. Oh, okay. So um, I'm still waiting. For the... Yeah, thinks Claire, he thinks real slowly about answering this question. <laughs> well, we've got the Caduceus um, books coming out, the uh, the one that's attributed to George, William Dawson Bellhouse of Liverpool. Uh, that one is um, – they've already – we've gone through pre-orders, and now the, the publisher is working on it. It's a small sort of artisanal book, and it's got also with it a li- little books on witch bottles and wax images and a few other things. Cool. And uh, so that one will probably come out when it comes out. Uh, You've been saying that for next- like two years now. <laughs> well, 
this is the nature. This is of the it. one I that I want to see the most is the book about the witch bottles. Every time I talk to you, it's like, yeah, this witch bottle book's coming. I, I have need to ask that book because somebody just posted on our Facebook page. Somebody put a picture. They dug up a witch bottle somewhere and they said, "What is this?" And I'm like, "That's a witch bottle." And then, like another friend of a friend of the show posted it right before I did. And she's snickering right now. But um, the first thing I thought I was, I'm like, Dan, Dan's book on witch bottles has got to be coming out because I haven't found anything else about that kind of stuff. So I'm like, when is this coming out? When is this coming out? And you're like, um, someday, eventually, you know, maybe. Oh, I need that book to come out. I have witch bottles. I have wax figurines. I need that book. <laughs> well, um, after that uh, initial release, we're going to see what, what sort of interest is out there, which apparently there there is considerable interest for these books. And I'm yes. Hi, how you doing? What's up? Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so, um. The next book is probably – it's going to be a few years down the road because I did find another manuscript, The Bodleian, which is longer than Of Angels, Demons, and Spirits, and it's more complicated, and it's actually written in by different people. So you had an, a 17th century author go through and then a very late 18th century author go through, and then um, there's a few passages that are definitely from the 19th century, and I've just got to figure out – you know, how to approach this. But it is going to be a really bizarre and interesting book with all sorts of, um, you know, that takes us in all sorts of different directions. Because I was trying to get away from writing about alchemy, for instance. I think I'm going to have to write about alchemy. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, yeah. hell yeah. How, well, how you, you can not have written something about alchemy with the, with the amount of research? It blows my mind that well, you haven't done it yet. The, the difficulty is is that you look, I look at alchemy and I realize that's a lifetime there. That's a lifetime's oh, yeah. worth of knowledge if it, and much more just to get into that particular topic. And I, one of the keys to success, unfortunately, when you're off, when you're an author is sometimes saying that topic is a lifetime of research. Someone else can handle that, but I may not be able to do that in this case. Well, at least you're honest. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm up front. I, I try to be up front about what I can, uh, what I can do and what I can't do. Uh, just to, it, it's, it's best to, you know, know what, where you, what your limitations are. So. Dan has got to know his limitations. Yes. The only complaint about the stuff that I have that you got is that these books are so freaking expensive. You know, and I understand why they're great quality books. I really, I just wish that like that you had like have a paperback version or a different version come out that's a little bit cheaper and easier to obtain. But I mean, I'm sure what you're paying for is the amount of research and time that you've put into them to to make them as good of a product as they are because they're not. Well, I go ahead. I will say that I continue to speak to my publishers uh, about this. Um, when I, when I, for if I publish scholarship, for example, which I have a little bit more control over because I, yeah, yeah, it's there. It's under a license, but uh, at this point, a lot of people are even in the in the publishing community are saying, "Yeah, we should probably make sure this stuff gets a little bit out." So I try to make sure that stuff um, it appears in it, whether that's um, on on my blog or it appears in on academia.edu or wherever I you know wherever I can. So I try to maneuver for that. You, you, you do um, make a point to, in this book talking yeah. about how there is a lack of scholarly there's a lack of scholarly approach to this. Like you're one of the few people that's going out and doing a scholarly approach to it and putting it out in that way. Why is that? Is it just because of the nature of the topic or, you know, is it, is it, it part of it's, 
part of it is the nature of the topic, and part of it is that it does require it's not something you can casually, you know, turn out. Um, like the books on uh, witch bottles and uh, wax images you're talking about, those were actually sort of fun to write. And it was, it was great because I could sort of choose material and I could, you know, I could say, okay, well, I, I can, you know, if I can't get to a certain source of material, I can at least report what I know. Um, these books are a lot more challenging. There is, you know, you have to know English, of course. You have to know some Latin. Uh, you have to be able to read the handwriting, which is not that big of a, a barrier. But there's, it's, I can see why a lot of people wouldn't want to do this because, like, if, even if I'm writing a scholarly article, if I get to a passage, I don't know what it is, that, that quite what it's saying. I can get around that, right? Because you can talk about what's around it. If it's illegible, you can just say, well, you know, it seems some parts of this are illegible or something like that. With something like Of Angels, Demons, and Spirits or the Book of Oberon, you're in the midst of it. You're in the thick of it. It's it's very hard to say, oh, yeah, I, I don't understand what's going on here or, um, gee, I you know, maybe I need to do some research into this little aspect of it, even if that I do not find that aspect of it the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this this is it's a lot of work. It's a lot of specialized knowledge. And I can, you know, I would love to be able to say that I would. You know, my next book was not coming out, you know, but like this was not coming out in, I want to say, three to four years. But that's that's what it takes. Wow. I, I imagine. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. finding the stuff and then researching it and transcribing it over. Like Oberon, yeah. you can see pages where there is just stuff missing because it was so old. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. read what was some, sometimes what was in the area there. And I'm sure you have to deal yeah, with a lot yeah. of that stuff because these manuscripts are so old. It's like, well, what is yeah. that word? What is that? What's missing here? Mm-hmm. You know? And just, just, just to be clear, um, one of the factors that has influenced me and influenced other uh, authors, I do believe in uh, their selection of text, is sometimes can you actually read it without, you know, uh, growing cross-eyed for, for long periods of time? Uh, so, you know, sometimes I, somebody publishes it, one of my, you know, Stephen Skinner or someone publishes a work and I, I look at the, you know, PDF of the manuscript. I'm like, yeah, I understand how that happened. Not to say that, you know, this, that he, they're going, that Stephen Skinner's going for the easy stuff. He's going for the important stuff. But sometimes you just look at a manuscript and you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I can see why, you know, they would pick this over something else because it's, it's easy to read. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and hey, if you can, uh, more power to you if you find something that's easy to read and really good and, you know, has historical import. And that's one of the reasons, honestly, I went for Of Angels, Demons, and Spirits in the manuscript there because that one's pretty easy to read. Um, this new one is – this new one's a mess. I think this person <laughs> was drunk. They didn't even – I'm sorry. I shouldn't call this person drunk because – but you should be able to figure out how to number pages correctly. And if if you can't manage that, you know, it's like – even on the left, odd on the right. But no, yeah. No, but is there a hidden code in there or something? Maybe no, no. I, there, no, this was there drunk. Passage, there are some passages in cipher, and uh, we'll see how that goes. It's also interesting because I think it's going to have three times the amount of art that was in <laughs> of angels, demons, and spirits. Um, so I, there was a serious talk with um, 
Llewellyn and James like, okay, so can we pull J- and because they like reusing James, uh, who once again did the, did the art in, in Oberon and, and of Angel Stevens and Spirits, and just saying, if we want to do this right, we have to pull him off of anything else he's doing <laughs> because it's just it's just so much. Can, so yeah, we have that, that to look forward to. Yeah. yeah. Like again, I can see why the price comes in. You know that you're paying for these books because of the amount of work and time that's gone into them and the quality of the book. Because these aren't books like you go to your local, you know, you go to the spiritual section and pull out some hokey book on magic or something like that. Hokey you know. book on magic. Well, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's some really bad books on magic that are out there where it's just like a couple of people like doing a ritual in robes in their living room with the shades drawn, yeah. you know, and, just, and I have just a friend that's laughing clear. right now as I say that. But, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and you just, know? just to be clear, we can't really reproduce these texts um, because, well, there are some cases in which we can we can make arrangements to have that done. But if we wanted to basically reproduce the original illustrations from uh, from the library, that's where the cost really starts to mount. Because mm-hmm. usually, um, okay, there's some expense in, you know, getting over to the UK, but there's not really expensive going into the library, maybe like, you know, 5 or $10. You're talking your licensing and deals and in. things like that. Is what you're yeah, talking yeah. About. So, yeah. So, and they're fine. Well, and they're also fine with, um, usually when you want to publish a text like this, you just write the library and say, Hey, I want to publish this. And they say, that's fine. But if you actually want to use images from the text, that's where you start getting, you know, the really big bucks. That's where we would probably, you know, the price of these books would go up exponentially. And that's, so I want to emphasize that's, that's why, what we're paying for partially here is actually bringing in somebody like James and getting him on board and making sure that he's can actually, you know, do the excellent work that he's doing here. Because otherwise, if these books were published without art, I mean, oh, they, yeah, this book would not be cool yeah. at all. It would, yeah, it would yeah, be really yeah. boring. It's the art that makes this book so cool. Oh yeah, I can't yeah, emphasize yeah. how cool this the symbols and the magic circles and all of the little details that are in this. Again, it's thick. Like, if you were to try to cast mm-hmm. a spell out of here, it's some pretty thick reading if you wanted to. It can be done, but it's it doesn't flow very well. It's not something that – it's not as easy as, like, as making a sigil and casting a sigil spell or something like that. It's just like, wow, this is, this is like, thick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thank you for coming on here, as always. You're always a pleasure to talk to. Um, you're always full of knowledge, and you're also very cool with the way that we do things. I also know that you're a big H.P. Lovecraft historian, and as you know, Ooh. myself and Lobar are huge H.P. Lovecraft fans. So anytime that you have something bit. new that comes out, you know, we love talking to you. We love sitting and picking your brain because we appreciate the history behind this stuff as well as the fact that, yes, it is a book on magic, but you also take the time to go in and dig to the history behind it and actually put the backstories of some of this stuff out there, which is, uh, you know, I certainly appreciate that myself. And, um, again, I, I love your books. I love what you do, and it's it's always great to talk to you. It's, it's always fun for us to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dan. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. 
or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. He is such a cool guy to talk to. It's Sure is. It's weird because I met him in person when I was at Soraya's last year, uh, the mm-hmm. night that I the one that night that I did the live show in Soraya. And where did the road go? And uh, I was hanging out with Soraya. And he's like, "Hey, uh, I know Daniel Harms." I'm like, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah, he doesn't live far from here. You want to you want to see if he wants to come down?" I'm like, "Wait a minute, come down and hang out like in studio with us, like sit next to me." He's yeah, yeah, I can do that. I'm like, "Really?" He's like, "Yeah, come on." I'm like, yeah. So Dan shows up. Very nice guy. Very cool. But. I wanted to have like a conversation with him about all this stuff. I'm like, wow, the guy's right next to me. I can sit and pick his brain. And we did. But Soraya was kind of like, hey, um, since you guys record funny stuff and you do the Ramblecast, find some funny Dance content. Dance for me, monkey. That's Dance kind of, for me. It's kind of what it felt like. And I, I knew where Soraya was coming from. And I'm like, oh, crap. Um, well, you know, me, when I collect articles, I put them in folders on the desktop. And I save them for when the time comes for when we have to do a Ramblecast. Um, you know, and then we'll sit down very quickly before the show and we'll say, how's this? How's that? How's this? How's that? And then we'll read them on the air. We don't do much pre-reading with that stuff, which is why the shows are the funny the way they are in their own stupid way. But Soraya was like, yeah, find some articles and junk. And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm like, I got Dan sitting right next to me. So I'm finding all these stories that were like, some of them were pretty risque and kind of like blah, blah, blah. But everybody was loving it. And there was times I look over at Dan and I'm like, you could sort of see him cringe. And then after the show was done, he did his last exit for the Lost to Heavy Metal show. And he said, come on, hang out for that one. Hang out for that one. And Dan did. And we did a couple of more stories on there. And then finally, in between songs, you know, we all went out and got pictures together. And Dan's like, well, in light of the last article you read, I think it was something to do with, like, having vaginal skin replaced with fish skin or something like that. I'm like, yeah, I, I know. I'm sorry. I didn't, you know. I'm, I, I'm, and we're done. Yeah. And Dan's like, well, I'm going to get out of here. I think what it was, though, is that weekend there was a graduation going on at Cornell University. Parking was weird traffic was weird plus he had a good i don't know hour drive home from where he was so he took off out of there and i think i stood there till like three o'clock in the morning and i think that was was that the last time we talked to him or i know we had him on here maybe it was about the last time i can't remember if the last time was when we had him on here about the uh the lovecraft book of magic yeah we had him on about the necronomicon or something like that but i'm not sure if that was before or after i went to i think it was before maybe i don't remember now i don't know but every time we've had him on here, he's been a great guest. Yep. Now it sucks because we have to wait for a while for his next book to come out. Unless we I want out. that book to come out so bad. Oh, you want th- these books are great, man. And you, I don't know if you'd like of angels, demons and spirits so much. I think you'd like Oberon a little bit better, but they're such, they're such great books. But even when he was out at Soraya's, I was like, so when's this witch bottle book coming out? And again, he's like, I don't know. It'll be done when it's done. It'll be done when it's done. It'll be done when it's done. So now I think what I'm going to do behind the scenes is I'm just going to be like, so uh, Dan, um, is the which bottle book out? Is it done? Which bottle? Can we get a copy? Which bottle? Which bottle? (laughs) Which will either block me or will somehow weasel a copy out of them. (laughs) Hey, with shot, right? And if it comes down to either, if it comes down to one copy that comes out, I will, I will send you the copy because I know you want it more than I do. So, because a lot of our publishers, yes, we'll give you one copy of the book and that's it. Shit. So need that book. Yeah, if it if if a copy does manage to come my way, I will I will give that copy to you. I will go on record Yay! saying that live. So, anyways, so um yeah, next episode is episode three hundred or the next original yeah. episode. 
Um, I know you don't care about it. You always say that, though. You don't care about making those milestone shows. Yeah. I'm a little bummed because we don't have the same amount of calls that we did for episode 200. Like, we had a lot of people that ended up calling on on that show. And this one, we don't have that many yet. So maybe people just yeah, haven't got Yeah, we clearly suck more now than we yeah, did we, That's I, fine. I think we've gone from being a Hoover vacuum to sucking with the power of a Dyson vacuum. So... No! That would mean we were going upwards. Yes, we're going upwards and suck. No, dude, our we're, sucking power is horrible. We are terrible. No, that means we suck more than we used to suck. Oh. Hoover oh, so we're like a black hole now. Yeah, clearly a Dyson sucks harder than a Hoover. So mm. the quality That's of our suction is going and is, is increasing at this point. Ah, Which gotcha. means if we make it to episode 400, by that point, we should be the equivalent of a black hole. Which means no light will escape our Spring show. Exactly. So, but I already have, I've already got somebody lined up for episode 301, ironically, really? uh, strangely uh, enough. Yeah, I do. It's a guy that, it's a listener of the show. He had his own podcast for a little while and he's been, you know, for a few years I've been trying to get this person on. It's a person that has a variety of, you know who it is. It's a listener. Okay. Um, they have a variety of really funny, odd stories that I've always wanted to get him on and tell. And they're, they're like, yeah, we'll see if it happens because we've tried to lay this out before and we'll see what, you know, what's going on. Cool. So, um, next episode. Don't say um, it. No, I'm not going to say who it is, but I know they're coming because they've bugged me multiple yeah. times. But I will say this. It's Gene I, I Goodall, isn't it? No, we're not going to be able to top Stan. I, I would like to, I wish we could have gotten a caliber on that level, but. Wow. Especially with wow. Stan just passing away. No, I don't mean to say wow. it that way. Hey, you know. I'm not trying to say it that sucks, way. So not trying to say it that way. coming out for us. <laughs> that came out really, really wow, that's bad. That's awesome. Yeah, as, Stan's as dead, I, as, but we'll take you instead. It's fine. I'm a I'm a wordsmith. I offend people. Oh, yeah. I have that effect on people. That's what I do. But um, anyway, so um, we're moving on. We'll, we'll keep we'll keep you know drifting on that. But I got to ask you a couple of random oh, questions, just out of the blue from it's certain not people out that of the are blue. out there. I'm being I'm going to be trapped here, aren't I? No, 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 not at all. I'm going to ask you completely uncontextual questions that only certain people that are out there listening oh right now God. are going to understand and get, get a joke out of. No, I need to ask you, this is a serious question. How are your feelings, what are your feelings about wearing sandals, like guy sandals in the summertime? You know, Sandals? Yeah, like the ones like you what like, my they have, like, they used to wear? No, you don't like guy sandals in the sun. Guy. No, not no, absolutely not like flip flops. Birkenstocks? Well, you know, like when you I go to like Walmart, you what buy. The fuck? I wear flip flops. You wear flip flops? Okay. So, like the, the leather no, sandals where it's got the little straps? Not. not? Oh, my God. That is not absolutely the answer that I wanted to hear. Someone out there right now, somebody is cackling not. with laughter. Dude, right I now. wouldn't be caught dead in that. Mayo, mayonnaise, or ranch? What? Mayo, mayonnaise, mayo and or ranch. are the same. Okay, Miracle Whip. Uh, a mayo and Miracle what Whip kind of mayo? ranch. Doesn't matter. Uh, mayo, I like mayo. 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 Just, I'll, pull, I'll use okay. Miracle Whip, but I'm a mayo fan. Ranch is from the devil. Fucking okay. hate ranch. How, so you don't like the idea of dipping pizza into no. ranch dressing? Okay, oh, so somebody else out there is cackling right now. Um, moving on. Okay, next. <laughs> Yeah, but I got to bring up this topic. I think my wife turn, thinks I'm turning into a witch because. You're not. Um, well, uh, Llewellyn has been sending me books nice. for at random. Nice. 
um, and they're primarily a magic book company because um, I, I requested what the heck was it? I got a book from them of, from somebody, so now they've added me to their list of books that they send me. So about every two weeks, I get random books on the topic of magic, which I'm fine with because, hey, I like reading the stuff. It goes on my bookshelf. People will walk in and go, oh, wow, look at this extensive collection of magic books you have. And as I said, for someone who doesn't cook a lot, you should have a lot of cookbooks. That's me. I don't, I, I don't practice magic, but I have a lot of books on the stuff, and I like reading it, and I really like the symbology. So now this stuff is just kind of like coming in here. It's just appearing. And plus, I recently got the tattoo. I think people are starting to get a little freaked out, a little concerned and a little worried, which I kind of find pretty yeah, funny. I would. <laughs> I have this really funny little book that I got called The Little Book of Cat Magic, which Did I'm going to be sending out to take that. Yes, I got That's it back. Hilarious. And um, wait, no, don't have send a, a, me anything on cat magic. Absolutely. No, not. I'm not sending it to you. You know who I'm going to oh, send okay. this yeah, book yeah, yeah. to. We have, right. we have one listener of the show, and I'm going to say your name. Say my it, name. Say you, my name. Tell me if you agree with me. Would this book not be great for a little? Oh, Amy? absolutely. Amy would love it. Yes, I have she to send this it. book to her. Are you kidding me? Yes, yes, I'm going to send this book to her. But this week I got a book on good juju, mojo rights and practices from the magical soul. Mm-mm. I got 365 Days of Hoodoo. Mm. I got uh, one called The Witch's Book of Mysteries, which right there, it's like, yeah, okay, this is cool. like post, this is another Wicca thing. If you're into that stuff, fine. that's fine. It's and I don't want to, I don't want a bad talk, Llewellyn. Like I had a family member that was like, I'm getting into Wicca. I'm like, okay. Sorry. And they're like, well, how do you feel about that? I'm like, well, what are you going to do? Dance around the tree? Dance around the tree? That's naked? a druid. Whatever. I don't care. Well, still, you know, it's harmless. You know, well, whatever. I don't know. There, there Depends are, if you're dancing around on public property or not. <laughs> this is very, very true. <laughs> but I've just been getting this stuff. So now, like, some of them I just give away to people because I feel that in certain situations, that is the proper karmetic thing to do for karmic purposes. Well, sure. Like, I know that Amy is genuinely going to appreciate this book on cat oh, magic because she, she, she is Amy, the mother of kittens. Absolutely. So, Maker anyway. of things, mother of kittens. That's exactly right. Correct. Correct. Um, likewise, we have a mutual friend that um, sees things very differently no. who I would not send some of these books yeah. to because she uh, would kill us. Them, you should still send them, <laughs> but for a completely different reason. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so anyways, um, that's all I can think of to talk about right now. I had more stuff, but I'm going to save it. Um 300 should be fun. 300 should be fun for a variety of reasons. It's going to be a little bit longer of a show, as always. Hopefully, we get more voicemails in. I did play the voicemail number before this little piece right here. People calling, man. Say hello. Actually, what I really want to hear is I want to hear... There's been a few people that want to call in and reenact their favorite moments from the show. No. I think it should. I think we should. Or at least tell us what their favorite memories of the show was Call over the last episodes. do your best episodes. impersonation of Emperor Palpatine. That would be another good one. That would be. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Aaron. A-A-R-O-N. A-A-R-O-N, yes. But, yeah, I'm running out of things to say and my mouth is getting dry. So this is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. See everybody at 300. Connecticut. Still not on Facebook. Probably not coming back. Sorry. Nah, really, dude, you're no, missed. Nah. You're missed. Dude. Yeah, you are. Yeah. You're, you're missed right, in I'll, the group. I'll, all right, I'll concede to the fact that perhaps in the group. But it, Facebook is it's terrible. 
you know what? I wanted I to leave first. really, really bad. Nah, nah, and then nah. when you bailed, yeah, and it kind of forced me to stay there because I was like, man, I, I just don't want to be here anymore. Let's even now, take it over. I don't interact a Let's whole heck of a lot. Take it over huh? Wow. Just take nah, a break. Well, no, there's. I want to, but there's people that there's reasons I need to be there. I'm hearing for, an awful for, lot of there's reasons, and I don't. Yeah, yeah I'm hearing I've an got awful reasons. Lot of I do. I do. I'm, as much as I bitch about it, I've got ah. reasons that I need to be there that are ah. that are very. There's dear telephones. To me. There's pen so. and paper. There's like Google Duo. There's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there, there, is. is there though? Is there really? Is there? Oh, shut up. Is there? <laughs> is there? Ah! Is there? I'm just gonna keep it's saying fine. it. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. It's fine. I'm fine. You're fine. We're fine. No. You should come back. No. Even just once in a if while. If I do come back, it hi. will be under a different uh, profile. I will not be that makes the sense. same profile. And I understand and, why uh, you're saying that. There will only be a handful of people that will know. I, I can understand why you say that. But you should still pop I deactivated the account. Like, it's you are dead. Missed. Yeah. I really? got a message from Legacy asking wow. me if I was actually still alive. Like, yeah, I'm still here. It's fine. My wife's still here. It's fine. We're all fine. It's fine. I wish you could just, like, jump oh. in every once in a while and say hi to the family. Because every once in a while, a message will pop up. Has anybody heard? Like, Amy actually posted a picture yeah, or something. Yeah, she texted me. Sent I, I sent like people my, she, my phone number. I sent people my email. People have a way to get a hold of me. I am enjoying actual reality. Yeah, but not everybody. I know, but it'd be cool if you checked in once in a while with family and said hi and then bugged I out could, again for a little while. I could check in under Alicia's saying. account. She's on the Facebook forum. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but do you she's want on the Facebook people bugging forum. her sometimes? She's, she's on the page. I know, but... It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Is she? She is. I know is she, she is. Yes, is she because really? she's bugging me. People are asking questions. It's crap. Okay, then. There you go. Stop in. Hi, what's up, everybody? How you doing? Go over to the banana page that I'm still not part of. Say hi over there. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I don't you know? know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> they really want, people really want me on that page. You should page. go. I'm, like, I'm not there. Go. So. Your, no. your eyes will fall out of your skull. No. No. It's no. fine. No. It's fine. I don't know. No. Like I said, man, I, I really don't want to interact that much as I yeah. do now. I'm, I'm just, uh, there's reasons I'm there, yeah, and that's no, it. Good. So, you know. Anyways, all right, I'm done. I'm out. Peace, folks. Talk to you again Bye. soon.